0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 166 of the Tick Bootcamp podcast. The title of today's interview is Unlocking Lyme, the Giveaway, an interview with Dr. Bill Rawls. My name is Richard Johansson,
1: And I'm Matt Zabatello.
0: Matt, if you want to heal from Lyme disease, you have to have a map. And one of the best places to find a map from healing from Lyme disease is Bill Rose's book, Unlocking Lyme. This is a book that I read three times and listened to the audio book two times for a total of five times. And it's become one of the Bibles that we rely on for understanding Lyme disease.
1: And Rich, what I always look for in our podcast episodes are what tips and advice and hacks Do our guests provide to our listeners that can help them in their Lyme journey? And Dr. Rolls, as usual, gave us so much information that we've never heard before. For example, he gave us specific frameworks on how to heal from GI, gut, and digestion issues using herbs. He also talked to us about autoimmunity. He also gave us a very specific herbal protocol to overcome Lyme-related stress and anxiety, and the fight-or-flight mode that many of us get stuck in.
0: What's really exciting about this year, 2021's Lyme Disease Awareness Month, is Bill Rawls is giving away his book, Unlocking Lyme for Free. So if you go to Rawls MD or you go to The Vital Plan, you can sign up and get this book, The Bible in Lyme Disease Healing, for free. So, Dr. Rawls, welcome to our third episode of the... Uh, tick bootcamp podcast. We've never been blessed to have a guest three times. You're the first. So thank you for joining us for a third time.
2: It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. Um, Thanks.
0: So Dr. Rose, I want to share a story with you that I don't think I shared with you before. Um, When we first started on our journey, Matt and I together, um, I actually purchased a number of different books. uh, And my goal was to make sure that I didn't get sick when I was bitten by a tick. I did not want to get um, chronic Lyme disease the way Matt had. And um, the best book that I read, and I'm holding it up now, although this is an audio podcast, is Unlocking Lime. It is my favorite book that I bought. And I just want you to know that I actually bought this book on Amazon, and I and I looked back at the cost. It actually cost me, I think, $17 when I bought it. And then I also bought the audio version of that book for $23. And I actually... Read the book twice, I listened to the book three times. It is absolutely a brilliant book. And I understand that you folks are gonna be actually offering this book for free during Lyme Disease Awareness Month. So can you share with our listeners what you're willing to do? And I wish you had done for me uh, two years ago when I had the opportunity to buy it for the first time.
2: Thank you, Rich. Uh, Yeah, that whole thing was a labor of love because it was, I went through this terrific journey that I learned so much. and you know there was a point when I was going through my online disease struggle, where I, I just said, "You know, if I can get through this thing, I can help other people." And that became my quest, is using myself to learn. Um, and I just immersed myself in it. And by the time I was working my way out of the other end of that, I was going, I really need to write this down. And we started doing it with blogs and the website and various different things. Um, But eventually I felt like I just need to really put this down. So I took all the information um, and decided to write a book about it, which basically took a year out of my life. Um, So everything that I learned, not only just about herbal therapy, which was my personal salvation, but things that I learned about other kinds of therapies did help people make good decisions about, do I need antibiotics? Where do we consider the possibility of ozone? All of these things, just to try to help people understand fundamentally what chronic Lyme disease was. Um, And everything that I knew of at that time that might forward progress to returning back to a state of health. Um, So I, I, I wrote the book and we did offer it for sale. But one of the things that I've tried to do for the Lyme community is just get it in people's hands. And so we do giveaways from time to time just to get it out there and get it in many as many people's hands as we can, because the more people out there that identify with chronic Lyme disease that truly understand what it is, the better we're going to design therapy programs and the better we're going to work toward really identifying and controlling
0: this thing. So Dr. Rolls, we've now done over 160 podcasts here at Tick Boot Camp, and we've started to see some patterns for people succeeding in overcome overcoming Lyme disease. And the pattern seems to take place where first there is this level of cognitive um, understanding of Lyme disease. Then there is this emotional understanding. And then finally, we have this sort of physical um, uh, mastery where they're doing things on a day-to-day basis that ultimately results in their healing. So we've argued to folks that they have to have a plan if they're going to be successful. And in our view, the best place to find a plan is at Rawls MD. Step number one, of course, is reading a book like this, Uh, unlocking Lyme. But unfortunately, Dr. Rawls, many of the people that we've interviewed and worked with, and Matt, quite frankly, himself, when we first started working together, was suffering from neurological Lyme and couldn't read. So one of the things that I think is wonderful about uh, the approach that you're taking is you also offer a whole almost like Rawls MD University of, of, of Lectures and master classes and videos that are available. So, can you talk about, in addition to getting this book for free, what other tools your company offers to people so they can develop a plan for healing?
2: Well, it, it, it is a comprehensive approach, and early on, we recognized that even before the book, we started doing webinars. Um, you know, I, I can remember back when Zoom was in its infancy and it was really pretty buggy and we had already been doing webinars before that, but we found that webinars were a really great way to convey information that, uh, you know, in, in a, a hour period, sometimes hour plus with questions that we could take specific topics that people were interested in, neurological Lyme, et cetera. Um, and I think our latest webinar was like number 65, 66. So we've been doing this a while. We've been doing them every month that long. And, and um, it's, it's, uh, it's a very comfortable way to reach people. Our census of people that join the webinars is excellent. Uh, we generally uh, include handouts. Uh, webinars are often when we do our, our book giveaways, um, to just provide as much information to that community as possible, um, and then my website that uh, we set up, Rawls MD, is just loaded with articles and information. Um, most Yeah, definitely slanted toward my point of view, but we try to get outside opinions and outside writers also uh, to try to give a comprehensive uh, a feel for what this thing is and give people as many valuable tools, useful tools as we can so they
0: can move forward. Dr. Rose, one of the things that I really... Enjoyed about your book is the your use of metaphor. You seem to be very good at, at creating metaphors that make uh, very complex topics understandable. And uh, one of the things that I'd like you to talk a little bit about today is the difference between the traditional metaphor of sort of finding and killing a microbe versus this po- this pot boiling over metaphor <laughs> where where understanding that chronic illness and chronic Lyme disease in particular is really a function of your immune system boiling over. So can you talk to us about that um, metaphor you use so powerfully in unlocking Lyme and how that should be something that people with chronic illness should be taking in, in, uh, into account
2: Well a good 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 metaphor is a writer's best friend you know if you can create um, a visual image that's familiar then it just helps people uh, figure something out and um yeah that was my experience early on you know when i went into it it was this idea that i i was carrying this microbe that causes lyme disease and this microbe was ravaging my system and i had to kill this microbe to get well and the deeper i got into it i realized that's just not the case at all um you know it 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 is it's complex and we can get into the complexities that, you know, I've even gone a, a good bit further in, in than I was in the book and understanding that. But, uh, but you know, you first hear about Borrelia, Bergdorf theory, the microbe that causes Lyme disease. Um, and then you realize, well, there are other species of Borrelia, there are a couple in Europe and then you expand that out and you realize, wow, There are 12 different species. Now, this was when I was writing the book of Borrelia that can cause Lyme disease worldwide, and Borrelia is found from the tropics to the Arctic Circle. Pretty much wherever there's ticks, there's Borrelia. Well, we're up to 21 species of Borrelia now. Probably a lot of others out there. But then you go past Borrelia, and there's Babesia, Bartonella, and Barchetsia and Lichia and Anaplasma and then different viruses. And then you go beyond that and find that people who are, you know, being checked for microbes with Lyme disease, well, they have Mycoplasma and Chlamydia and all these other microbes. And it's like, well, those aren't typically spread by ticks. Turns out we get a lot of those as respiratory infections when we were kids. Mycoplasma pneumoniae has been closely tied to rheumatoid arthritis and everyday osteoarthritis. And then chlamydia is tied to Parkinson's, closely tied to MS. And you start looking at this. And then I started researching microbes that had characteristics like the microbe that caused Borrelia and could be present in the body without causing illness, but could cause similar symptoms if immune systems were symptoms, self-functions were disrupted. And I came up with a list of over 100 different microbes, many spread by ticks or other biting insects, but we get them other ways too. And it basically turns out we're microbe collectors. We collect microbes throughout our entire lives and they end up becoming part of us, not just in our gut, not just on our skin, but peppered throughout our body. And if we checked everybody in New England, what we'd find is probably most people were carried, a lot of people would be carrying Borrelia and Babesia and all of these things that aren't sick. And we're actually finding that. I remember reading about a practice in um, California that they saw Lyme patients, but they checked all, now this is California where they don't have Lyme disease, right? Um, that's, that's what they say. Um, so they checked all their patients that had not, that didn't have Lyme disease, didn't have symptoms of Lyme disease. They found out that a third of them had Borrelia. And then Several months ago, there was a a statement released from a researcher in New Haven, Connecticut, um, the University of New Haven at Connecticut. Um, This researcher was looking at breast cancer specimens and found Borrelia in 80% of the cells of the breast cancer specimens. So this thing is big. Um, So we have these things and and, um, if you're healthy and your immune system is strong, you are in good shape. More specifically, if your cells are strong, you're in good shape. But you do things like eat bad food, get stressed, have all kinds of stress factors that stress your cells and make them more vulnerable. And these things start erupting. And that's what chronic Lyme disease is.
0: So let's pause there for a second, Dr. Rose, because that's one of the most important lessons you taught us here at Tick Boot Camp when we were interviewing you during one of the one of the earlier times that we had met with you. And that is that you shared with us that it's not the microbes that are making us sick, it's the failure of our immune system to manage those microbes. So, for example, someone like me who grew up on Long Island, I've been bitten by ticks three times in the last three years. And I've been bitten by ticks during my 57 years, many, many, many times. So I'm sure I have all of these tick diseases in my system, but my immune system is managing them. So talk about now the pot boiling over metaphor and how immune health and we'll get the cellular health separately is an important issue for us to focus on first to protect ourselves from Lyme disease and then ultimately to heal from this this polymicrobial infection I think that's a definition that you use over at Rawls MD right yeah
2: it's um, this I, I think one of the where where we get confused in the conventional medical community is we don't separate acute illness or acute infection from the concept of chronic infection and acute infection is the entry of a microbe into the body for the first time. And to get into the body, microbes have to break through barriers. Um, So, you know, thinking about a current thing, COVID, um, coronavirus, uh, different microbes specialize in crossing different barriers. So coronavirus has comes riding in on air droplets to make an assault at the lungs. And So the lungs are a pretty vulnerable barrier. There's a pretty thin uh, barrier between the air and the bloodstream. So when you look at these microbes, whether you're talking about coronavirus or Borrelia or Bartonella or mycoplasma or any of these things, or even Ebola virus, what they want is to get to the bloodstream because the bloodstream is the highway to all the cells in the body and our cells are food for microbes. We don't think about that, you know, um, you know, you hear about microbes in biofilm and that sort of thing. Microbes have to eat and yeah, there's food in our GI tract and yeah, this, the microbes on the skin live off of oils that we secrete, but her cells are really good microbe food. They, are, they offer everything that microbes need to survive. So all microbes are trying to get to the bloodstream to get cells in the body, every single one of them. And so when coronavirus does that, it has, you know, it hits the full force of the immune-first defenses in the lungs and you have what amounts to a battle that goes on that we feel is a bronchitis or a pneumonia. So think about ticks or fleas or biting flies they inject those microbes directly into the bloodstream right where they want to go. So a lot of times we don't even know about it because it skips that initial confrontation. So they go straight through. Um, Now, the immune system is hot on their trail. It's, um, when when you think about it, the degree of harm of a pathogen is dependent on how well the immune system knows it. It really has nothing to do with the microbe or very little to do with the microbe. Um, Ebola virus is hugely threatening because humans have never really been exposed to it. So our immune system really has no defenses for it. And it ravages the cells of our body. It hits the bloodstream and ravages us. Whereas you look at ticks, ticks have been biting humans ever since they've been humans. Borrelia, rickettsia, all of these things, they've been around forever. So our immune system knows them. So they enter the bloodstream and the immune system is hot on their trail. But the deal is that the microbes have built these sophisticated stealth ways of getting around. So they actually use the white blood cells. So the white blood cell gobbles up the microbes. And this is true of all of them, coronavirus, everything. The the white blood cell gobbles up the microbes to get rid of them. They stay alive inside the white blood cell and use the white blood cell as a vehicle to go into the brain and the heart and the joints and all the the tissues in the body. But the immune system is putting as much pressure on that microbe as it can. And if it's successful, sometimes it might completely eradicate the microbe from the body. Sometimes, though, there's a stalemate. And what happens is these microbes pepper the body, pepper our tissues. So it's a pretty low concentration. When you think about our our body is trillions of cells and the average bacteria is 100 to 1,000 times smaller than one of our cells, even millions or billions of bacteria in our whole system is pretty small. It's not much. So if we biopsied everybody out there with chronic Lyme disease, biopsy their tissues, their muscle, their brain, whatever, we'd find mostly normal cells. And this is something that really frustrates uh, that, that doctors don't understand. The infectious disease researchers don't understand this chronic infection component as being kind of a give and take stalemate between the microbes in the immune system because If you biopsy tissues, you'd find normal cells and just occasionally scattered here and there, you'd find cells that have been infected with microbes because all of these microbes are intracellular. They basically live inside a a cell in the body, cannibalize all the nutrients of the cell to make more microbes, and then they erupt and, uh, and, and infect other cells. So you can kill them with antibiotics when they're out in the open, but if they're inside cells, you're not going to get to them. But you think about it, the immune system has a dilemma on its hand. So you have these cells just peppered, nestled among normal cells all through the body. And at that point, it's a war on terrorists. You know, it's like terrorists hiding out in a city full of civilians use bombs and heavy artillery, and it's going to be bad. So if you come back and you have to use a targeted therapy. So it makes antibodies to those cells that have been infected by microbes, but there's collateral damage to normal cells that we call autoimmunity. And what I'm beginning to appreciate is that we all have a certain level of autoimmunity because we all have some microbes in our tissues. You know, you look at a level of a, a indicator for autoimmunity like ANA, Um, it's read as positive or negative, but a negative test is not zero. It's a range and everybody has some of it, which means we all have some autoimmunity. So I'm reading now in the literature, they're starting to define, and they've done this for Lyme arthritis and Lyme carditis, that this autoimmune activity against the tissues is driving a lot of the damage as much as the microbes. The more microbe activity you have, the more autoimmune drive you have. And so the more that the immune system contains these things, but eradicating the microbes is really hard for the immune system to do at that point because it's a trade-off for too much damage. So I'll admit some of this is speculation, but this is where I've been going over the past decade and now over just the past several years the evidence that supports this is coming available that it get, it's becoming easier and easier to make that as a definitive statement.
0: But I think that's what's driving uh, Lyme disease. So can you talk to us a little bit more about the immune system and the difference between um, antibodies and T cells? Well, antibodies are doing two things. All right.
2: Um, antibodies can damage a cell or damage a microbe. You know, there, there's no doubt, but it's more like a tag. All right. Um, you know, basically, an antibody is a little uh, signal that sticks on the side of a microbe or a foreign substance or a cell that's been infected with microbes. And it's a flag to say, hey, you know, we need to get rid of this. This is this is foreign. It's abnormal so you tag things so it's like when foreign proteins cross from your gi tract, or microbes enter your body or cells are starting to cross the line to become cancerous um, your b cells um, which are a type of white blood cells put a tag on it to say or put a lot of tags on it to say hey this you, you need to clean this up you need to get rid of this thing so certain kinds of white blood cells come along and recognize that tag and attack that thing to get rid of it all right so but if you're making tags to cells that have been infected with microbes you're bound to some of those tags end up getting stuck to normal cells and i would say that's what autoimmunity is um, I think that's what drives autoimmunity. I think you know, we're seeing more and more microbe connections to various different autoimmune illnesses. Because when you look at this thing, we all get microbes. Some are worse than others, you know? I mean, if you go through life and you don't get Borrelia and Bartonella and those kinds of things, you're less apt to become chronically ill, but we all get something. So we all have this going on in our body to some degree.
0: But Dr. Rose, are there some T cells that will cleanse the inside of a cell, and some T cells that will be extracellular, meaning cleaning up the area around the uh, the cells?
2: Oh yeah, I mean it's it's more complicated than just getting in on a podcast, but yeah, you have a variety of different white blood cells in general, and you have uh, different types of uh, T cells. You know, you've got T, uh, you've got primary T cells that are cytotoxic that kill cells, you've got other cells that specialize in microbes, you've got um, helper T cells that help, um, help define that whole process, you've got regulator T cells that kind of tone it back down. And part of autoimmunity is you don't have enough regulation to tone it down. You know, there's two, so, so it's, it's, it's more complex than what I uh, have described, but I do think this interaction between the immune system and microbes in our tissues, um, that's the only way that I can find to explain something like autoimmunity. And it is interesting to see, a, a, you know, a disease like chronic Lyme disease that now we're defining that autoimmune component of it. Which really supports this, this idea of these low concentrations of microbes in tissues. Um, so again, you know, that pot boiling over is not this huge assault. It's more just that the immune system is, is being overworked. You know, there's more microbe activity than it can handle. And therefore, I think. More autoimmunity, which is driving the symptoms, um, because we've said that over and over. You know, you hear that. You know, one of the things that uh, that of the reasons that chronic Lyme patients are discounted is the fact that um, they don't find high concentrations of microbes in people, and they don't have high concentrations of microbes in the bloodstream. And it's like, oh no because they're used to that assault. You know, we, we equate things to that initial infection. That's this major assault um, that, um, that, 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 that's, that's what's driving the illness. But very interestingly, you know, I, I've talked to thousands of people with chronic Lyme disease over the past 10 years. 95% of them don't remember a specific tick bite that they got ill. But those that do and I'm seeing this more and more are the people that the tick was on for a long period of time or they got multiple tick bites. It's like I talked to a person the other day and I've talked to several people like this. This is really common. It's like, you know, the person said, well, you know, I was hiking and I came out through a bunch of bushes. And the next day I picked off these little seed ticks and I had bullseye rashes all over my body. And then, you know, they got a huge load of microbes and not just Borrelia, ticks carry hundreds of microbes. So they did get a true assault. Um, But most people, just that one little injection from a tick that didn't didn't stay on that long, um, it's enough that it gets seeded in their tissues and you do that multiple times in a lifetime. And then you have other factors come on. That's when people get sick.
0: Dr. I'm not really clear about the autoimmune issue that you discussed. Is autoimmunity a consequence of the system tagging too many cells, meaning it's overworked and it's tagging too many, or is it almost like a cytokine storm where there's too much, you know, the system is overworking and you don't have, you don't have T cells that will stop the, the, the process of killing too many cells, which, which is it, or is it both?
2: I think it's a little bit of both. Um, again, you know, these are, I, I'll admit that a lot of this is just speculation that I've been working on for a decade trying to explain this thing. Um, and so there are complexities. I mean, I, i you know, the general, if, if you ask most infectious disease specialists, you um, I don't think they're really to the point of looking at the literature. I mean, I'm constantly scanning the, the, the scientific literature and looking for evidence of things out there and asking very specific questions. So I've been looking for this possibility of autoimmunity associated with Lyme for some time and we're seeing it documented as a phenomenon more and more. Um, so, and, and just this fact of, you know, what we call antinuclear nuclear antibody um, you know, it is a, it's a measurement for autoimmune illness. And, uh, you know, I, uh, people get told all the time that, well, you know, my ANA was negative and therefore I don't have autoimmune illness. And it was like, OK, wait a minute. Let's look and see what an, an ANA is. And it's a range um, so everybody has an anti antibody, which is an evidence, you know, it's an antibody of, that defines autoimmunity. Everybody has that. Everybody has a level, along with other autoimmune markers. We all have that. So that in itself says, well, we all have autoimmunity. So it's this arbitrary number <laughs> that's set to say, okay, well, this is a positive number. This is significant. And how do we set that? Well, I'm coming around to thinking as much as anything because when you look at autoimmune illnesses, the therapies for the illnesses are really toxic. And if you set those parameters too low, then you're going to be exposing people that aren't that sick to very, very toxic drugs. So interestingly, I'm coming around to appreciating that probably uh, it didn't happen consciously, I'm sure, but. Probably one of the things that sets the marker, sets the arbitrary cutoff for autoimmune illness is the toxicity of the therapy, not
0: the actual presence of the illness. Let's talk a little bit more about microbe load, because one of the things we learned about COVID is that um, the folks who are most likely to die from COVID were the folks who came in contact with COVID with a large microbe load, meaning they were a large viral load, I'm sorry, where they were in a small room with a lot of people who were now, you know, adding to the, I guess, the atmosphere of that room, the, you know, this high viral level, and then you get, uh, then you get COVID, the likelihood of you, of you getting very sick and ultimately dying would be substantially higher. Now, is that the same thing with, with Lyme disease, where you have a number of ticks biting you, uh, and, and increasing the load that you are absorbing or one tick biting you for a long, long time so that the volume of, of microbes is substantially higher and therefore you're more likely to get chronic Lyme?
2: Yeah, this is interesting. Um, whether you're looking at chronic Lyme disease, Ebola virus, uh, COVID, anything, um, there, there are three prim- primary factors that I define as affecting Uh, what's going to happen when that uh, microbe enters the body. Um, It's familiarity by the immune system, it's size of inoculation, and it's health of the individual's cells. So you notice I didn't say health of the immune system. And and I'm kind of backpedaling along that because I've been talking about health of the immune system for a long time. And I'm finding it's not as much health of the immune system, it's health of our cells. So familiarity, the more familiar the immune system is with the microbe, then the, the less virulent it is. You can take a horrible pathogen and give someone a vaccine against that pathogen, which helps to become the the immune system become familiar with that pathogen in a non-lethal way, and it's no longer a pathogen. People who survive Ebola virus develop, their immune system figures out how to manage Ebola virus and it's no longer a pathogen. The reservoir host uh, that we think is a spider for Ebola, it's not a pathogen. So it's familiarity by the immune system of that particular th- entity, um, which is variable. You know, I think some people are probably, uh, you know, and it's all what our ancestors were exposed to over not thousands of years, but hundreds of thousands of years and millions of years. Um, so you know, we 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 talk about the ancient illnesses, um, uh, smallpox, bubonic plague, all of these kinds of things. I researched them recently and writing this new book I'm writing. Um, I researched them and they've all come within the past five, six, five to 6,000 years, which you look at hundreds of thousands of years of human history. It's very recent. They've all traced them to being skipped over from an animal host. And they all occurred when humans started farming and built cities and started crowding. And when we started crowding, that's when microbes, these devastating illnesses crossed over from other hosts. So it's familiarity. So, you, you know, these, the black plague is still, um, it, it is still devastating to us because, and smallpox, because they're pretty recent history. You know, we haven't been exposed to them very long at all um, in the total history of humans. So it's what our ancestors were exposed to. Our ancestors, 50 or 100,000 years ago, they were being bitten by ticks every single day, every day, and other biting flies. I mean, they lived at ground level all the time. So we do have some familiarity. So on a scale of one to 10 for virulence, I put at the top of the scale, currently Ebola. I think that's probably the the worst thing out there. And it's because our immune system doesn't know it. At the bottom of the scale on a one is our normal flora because not a zero, because even our normal flora can cause us problems. Um, Borrelia, Bartonella, Rickettsia, these things, they're probably in the range of three to fives. So they're not highly virulent microbes. Our immune system does have familiarity with them, but not as much as our normal flora. And I'm convinced that if, you know, at, at some point we may be able to find that some people have more immunity, built-in immunity to these things than other people. So I think there is a genetic factor. Inoculation, that's huge. You know, if you give your, if, you, if, if only a smattering of microbes hit your bloodstream, then you've just had a little peppering of, cell, of your cells and your immune system can take that pretty easily you flood your bloodstream with microbes and pepper your entire body with a load of microbes, your immune system is going to be backpedaling from the very beginning to keep up with those things. And, and the third is the health of your cells. I think that's critical. Um, the, because what I'm also finding in my recent research is that cells, it's not just the immune system, that cells do have some ability to resist invasion by microbes. And again, all we're talking, all the things that enter the body, we're finding that even bacteria that we didn't think had capabilities like streptococcus, E. coli, others actually have the ability to invade and live inside cells. So pretty much anything that goes inside the body is going to do that. Um, So our cells the more that we eat bad food and saturate our body with toxins and run a stressful life that we're not sleeping and our cells can't recover because they're not getting downtime because we're pushing that stress button all the time or being sedentary. So we're not flushing our tissues out and flushing our cells so that our cells can breathe. So if cells are stressed, they're more vulnerable to, to invasion by microbes. And I think that in total is a bigger factor than the immune system. So you put those three things together and that's why people
0: become chronically ill. So let's talk about cell health and whether or not we can use herbs as a vehicle for strengthening our cells. So we will be healthier and we can deal with these types of, uh, of attacks that we are facing, whether it be from tick bites or from other, um, vehicles for injecting microbes into us.
2: That's where herbs are just extraordinary. Um, Because when you look at this concept of cellular health, so our body is made of trillions of cells. Everything that happens in the body is made of cells. Um, So, uh, you know, uh, Everything, all of your functions, um, whether you want to get up and walk across the room or the fact that you can see a computer screen, it's all happening because of cells in your body. If you have symptoms, it means your cells are stressed. Any symptom is a reflection of cells being stressed. And sometimes you can define that cellular stress, uh, the, you know, that the symptom points to the location, like if you block a coronary artery and your heart cells don't get oxygen, you you feel it as chest pain. Sometimes it's general stress. Um, You know, your, your cells just aren't pumping out the energy they need and you get fatigued, but it's all the cells in your body. So to be healthy, cells must have pure, clean water. They must have nutrients. They must have oxygen. But they must have enough flow to carry away any metabolic waste and toxic substance that is built up. And, and when that doesn't happen, cells are stressed. Um, and that's what causes chronic illness. So, you know, if enough cells are stressed and they don't have the ability to recover, we become sick. Um, that's the driving force behind chronic illness. And that's how I'm coming to think about illness in general is in terms of cellular stress and how we stress cells. So to have healthy cells, you have to have uh, all the cells in the body working together. You know, you gotta have cells in the intestines extracting nutrients and cells in the lungs pulling in oxygen and cells in the heart pumping things around and your muscle cells to go out and get food. And, and your, your, your brain is constantly sensing the, the, your surrounding environment and sending signals through hormones and nerves and other chemical messengers to coordinate all the functions. So when we talk about hormone balance, what we're talking about is a conversation between the cells in the body. And when when the conversation is good and all the cells are communicating and all the cells are getting the water and oxygen and everything they need, we feel great. If we don't feel well, those things have broken down and cells aren't getting what they need. So the driving forces behind that are what you eat. You know, are you feeding your cells properly in the environment that you live? Are you know, are you exposed to toxic substances like natural toxins like mold or excessive radiation or excessive petrochemical toxins? Are you polluting your cells? If you pollute your cells, they can't function. Um, are you chronically stressed? Are you pushing that stress button? Because you know, if you're if you're pushing the stress button, um, you're driving adrenaline, you're disrupting cortisol, you're disrupting sleep. Um, sleep you know, cells need to recover; they need downtime to repair. When we talk about healing, what healing is is cells being able to recover from stress. That's really important. So these things are just. Really dynamically important that you have to have all of these things going on. So, and I am coming back to, to the herb question here. Um, so, and we have to exercise because exercise moves blood, exercise flushes the debris and the junk that builds up. So, and then the microbe factor you've got these microbes that are affecting cells and the immune system. Well, it has to clean up dead cells and clean up microbes and clean up the debris between cells. So it has a big job of doing that. And if those things aren't happening, our cells start to suffer. When you look at the phytochemistry of herbs and this is this is uh, th- these are things that are going to be in my new book that I'm writing right now i mean all these things i've been figuring for 2 years now to figure out how to tell the story so this is a great opportunity but when when you look at herbs they are protecting cells more than anything else so we we look at at different kinds of things, you know, our, our food, we know we should eat vegetables, um, but, but the difference is there, I define things as, as far as organic things as being either phytonutrients or phytochemicals, all right? So phytonutrients are vitamins, carbohydrates, fats, things that cells need to function. So all of our cells need nutrients, and a lot of that originally is plant source nutrients. So our food is really rich in nutrients. Phytochemicals are protectants. Plants are producing phytochemicals to protect their cells, and they're producing plant substances to protect their cells against all ranges of microbes, viruses, protozoa, yeast, all of it, bacteria free radicals, toxic substances, radiation. So all of the things that threaten our cells that put pressure on our cells and stress our cells, plant phytochemicals counteract those things. So when we take an herb, the biggest thing that we're taking is the protective properties of the plant. So when we look at herbs, we see that all herbs have a lot of range because all herbs have all these protective phytochemicals, and that I think is remarkable. So any herb, well, you know, there's some herbs that that are more non-selective; they just have protectants. So they have antimicrobial substances and antioxidants and all these protective substances. And then there are other herbs that have other properties that um, that have that affect communication. So plants are also using chemicals to communicate. They, they, you know, they use a lot of the same chemical messengers that we do to coordinate all of the cellular functions within the plants. So when we take that, it tends to balance our communications. So the two big things that herbs are doing that I think is the most important is they have protectants and they have uh, we, we we adapt adopt the plant's communications. And sometimes that's very general. Um, Like an herb like ashwagandha, it's having just a balancing effects on our central hormone pathways. Where other herbs, those communications are more specific like kava or St. John's wort that have a very specific effect. So the more protective and non-selective a plant is, the the less the, the lower incidence of side effects and undesirable effects. The more a plant is more specific in those communication aspects, um, the more the higher risk of side effects. So, in other words, the more drug-like. But even the most drug-like plants are still going to have all those protectants. So any herb you take, you're going to get cellular protection. And that's the most remarkable things about herbs. It's a lot less specific and a lot less complicated than people think. Um, you could take most any herbs and your cells are going to be protected. Now, some are a little better antimicrobials than others. Some are a little better at hormone balancing than others. Some have more specific protectants to, the, to maybe the vascular system like hawthorne. Um, But all herbs are going to have protectants and that gives them a huge advantage over anything you could take, including your food, because. With our food plants, we've cultivated them to have lots and lots of nutrients. You know, the plant normally doesn't produce a lot of extra carbohydrate for to feed other creatures. It's producing those things for itself. So we have cultivated, we groomed our food plants to produce robust concentrations of phytonutrients. But the cost has been, they don't have the, 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 the amount of phytochemicals, those protective chemicals that wild plants do. And that's why we have to put so much pesticide and herbicide and everything else on our plants, on our food plants is, they can't protect themselves anymore, which I find just a fascinating way to think about it. So herbs, if we're cultivating herbs, we're trying to stress them. So they're producing lots more of these protective phytochemicals. So our food plants, we don't wanna stress them. We want nutrients. Our herbs, we wanna stress them. We want them really producing lots of robust phytochemicals that have all these wonderful protective properties. So it's a really different
1: way of thinking about herbal medicine that I've come around to. So Dr. Rose, before we go into specific herbs for specific conditions, I can't help but wonder, so many people take multivitamins on a daily basis. Would it be beneficial to have an herbal blend that people can take daily to help protect themselves and maybe help just balance out their, their system?
2: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of my big goals, <laughs> is, is to get people, to get every person taking herbs on a daily basis because when we look at this concept of, of multivitamin or, or, you know, we're, we're really big on supplementing nutrients and the deal is that if you're eating a really, really healthy diet, your food is supplying most of the nutrients that you need and taking a multivitamin eh, might give you a little bit of extra, but it's hard to find evidence that it's doing that much. But the deal is, if a plant, if one of your cells is getting all the nutrients that it needs, it doesn't really need any extra loading more and more nutrients to the cell. You know, there, there, there's, there's, there's a point where it just can't use anymore. Um, so nutrients, so our multivitamins our minerals and vitamins like vitamin C and all of these kinds of things. Um, they're, they're just nourishing the cell. They're giving the cell what it needs to perform its functions to do its job, um, the raw materials that it needs to generate en- energy, build parts, and, and build whatever it needs to do as, as, a job, as, as its job. Um, but it's not, our, our, our vitamins don't have that much of a protective properties, all right? So sometimes you need more. It's like um, vitamin C when you're stressed, your cells use a lot of vitamin C, so you need a lot of vitamin C. But if you're not stressed and you load your cells with, or you load your body with vitamin C, it doesn't really do anything. In fact, it can have some toxic effects. So with herbs, we're talking about something completely different. We're not talking about nutrients, we're talking about protectants. And our cells do need a lot of protection. And in fact, it's pretty easy to make a case for the fact that if you look at any deficiency, in our current diet, that deficiency is phytochemicals, is protective phytochemicals. Because if you look at human the, 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 the times that humans have been, our species, Homo sapiens has been on the earth, it's been about 200,000 years. And 95% of that time humans ate a foraged food diet. So the plant side of the foraged food diet included leaves, bark, roots, wild berries, wild mushrooms, predominantly. Well, if you ask the question, well, what are wild herbs made of? What constitutes an herb? Leaves, bark, roots, wild berries, wild mushrooms. (laughs) It's exactly the same thing. So in other words, that forage food diet was loaded with, it was really sparse in nutrients. They had to eat a lot of food, but it was loaded with protective phytochemicals, which is something we don't get today. And we haven't been getting it for the past hundred years because when we started farming and um, I used to think that, that uh, you know, we, start, we started farming and stopped foraging because f- farming was better you know, it was, it was better than than all that work foraging. Um, But I've read some accounts that have really questioned that, that suggests that we stopped farming because our populations gradually grew enough that there just wasn't enough foraged food to support populations. And the first thing that was farmed was wheat. Um, And it kind of, and once you started doing that, your population grew and then you very quickly outgrew the capacity to actually support any significant population with forage food. Um, but when we did transfer over to farming and we the thing we farmed was grain more than anything else, uh, wheat and corn and rice, which could also be fed to domesticated animals, we still kept that phytochemistry history as our culinary herbs and our medicinal herbs. So we've, so all cultures on earth from the time we started farming have continued to have a medicinal and culinary herb history. It's only in the past hundred years that we've traded our herbs for synthetic
1: pharmaceuticals. So Dr. Rose, talk to us more about herbs that can be used to combat stress, specifically in the chronic Lyme world. Many people get stuck in that fight or flight mode. They have that sympathetic nervous system activation. And I know there are certain herbs that can help sort of balance out and protect people from stress, but also help communicate with cells in the body to calm down that stress mode that is associated with chronic Lyme. So what herbs would you recommend for that specific use case? Um, Sure. There
2: are a lot of good herbs, but I'll talk about a specific combination that I've used that I really feel very comfortable with. And when we look at this concept of being overstressed, you know, in in our world, we have so many things coming at us all the time that we stay chronically stressed. And basically, we're just we're activating that fight or flight response um, that used to be. I mean, you know, 50,000 years ago, uh, a human didn't have schedules, didn't have uh, just pretty much it was forged for food all day and, and run away from, from bad, bad threats like tigers. Um, but that wasn't an everyday thing. you know, that was very, very intermittent. But you need that response. And when we push that stress button, that fight or flight button, it changes everything in our physiology, our reflexes our reflexes become acute Our our, our mental function sharpen. Um, and, you know, it's all designed to escape that threat. But we put everyday maintenance functions on hold. And if you do that intermittently, it's okay. If you do it 24 seven, it's a really bad problem. And when so when you're running high adrenaline and disrupting cortisol, you know, it's like taking your car out on the road and and putting the brake on as hard as you can and slamming down on the accelerator. It's going to burn the engine out. And that's what it does. It burns your cells out. It pushes them too hard and they don't have time to recover from stress. So everybody talks about the adrenal glands and adrenal fatigue and this, that and the other. Um, but it, it, uh, it's all having to do with the brain, all right? Um, so the brain is constantly sensing on uh, of what's going on outside the body. And in the ancient world, you know, you look out and you see a threat uh, tiger running your way, you know, you go and run out of the way and that's a real threat. But we have threats that are on our mind all the time. You know, uh, did we meet that meeting on time? Did we have we done the work we need to do to get food and pay for pay the mortgage every month? And we just have constant constant perception of threat all the time, and that affects our brain. So it, so when we look at this fight or flight response, it starts in the brain, and it's mental functions. So the brain is assessing what's going on outside, the outside environment, and it is using hormone pathways to change what's going on inside the body, what our cells are doing to match those concerns. So the brain works through a little gland at the base of the brain called the hypothalamus. The hypothalamus is basically a uh, a relay center. Um, And I like to think of it as a thermostat that regulates um, appetite and hunger and mood and temperature and, and all kinds of of different processes in the body. And it regulates uh, everything else going on through these other glands. So the it works through the pituitary gland, which is kind of like a secretary, you know, it takes it takes messages that are coming from the hypothalamus and sorts them and either sends them to the thyroid gland to regulate metabolism or to uh, to the adrenal glands, which regulate our circadian rhythm, and that's where adrenaline comes from, um, or to the reproductive glands, which is a pretty important function in, in our whole lives. But it also affects the, sympa, the, the autonomic nervous system that includes sympathetic adrenaline or parasympathetic, the, the vagal nerve. So you have all this together. Um, so if you're pushing that stress button, which most of us do more than we really need to, Um, you know, one thing is trying to tone it down, just to tone your thinking down and your perception of stress down. But herbs can help out. So how do they help? Um, Well, three different combinations of things that I've used. Um, uh, One is a herb called ashwagandha, uh, which is a a really wonderful herb. It's it's from Africa. And it has the effect, it's considered an adaptogen and helps us adapt to stressful situations. And it does so by feedback mechanisms to the hypothalamus. So your hypothalamus is constantly sensing what's going on. It's taking this message from the brain and going, okay, you need to push the thyroid and the adrenal glands harder, but it still monitors thyroid functions and adrenal functions, so there's a feedback mechanism. So ashwagandha, the phytochemicals in ashwagandha, those messaging side of the, ash, uh, of the phytochemistry is feeding back to the hypothalamus to tone it down a little bit, basically turn that thermostat down on stress a little bit. And so it turns down the, the thyroid so it's not pushing so hard, turns down the adrenals and that helps also balance uh, functions in the ovaries and testes. And so that has a direct effect on stress, on circadian rhythm, which is really nice. There's this balancing effect. Um, I like to combine in L-theanine, which is an amino acid. It's found commonly in green tea. It blocks, it blocks caffeine, but it also blocks the exciting neurotransmitters in the brain so that you have this direct calming effect. And then um, I, I use Uh, a combination of of, uh, uh, two herbs from traditional Chinese medicine, a philodendron and magnolia species, not not species that we have in this country. Um, They're from China, but that uh, has the effect of affecting the GABA system, so we have a direct calming effect. So the effect is we're affecting the hypothalamus in the brain directly to tone down this stress response and when you tone it down, you know, it, 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 it affects that whole pathway in a positive way just to settle things down. But still with those herbs, you get all the protective properties too. Um, it's been found that ashwagandha has some really nice antimicrobial effects. It actually uh, is good for chlamydia and a number of things has really wonderful antioxidants, it protects against radiation, it protects all the cells in the body. So anytime you're talking about herb, yeah, we may be looking for this more specific or it's effect that we want, but we still get all these protective effects for our cells that do wonderful
1: things for us, that it's kind of like, whoa, why would you not do that? You know? So Dr. Rose, we, we have many people who suffer from anxiety and stress from Lyme disease, but are afraid to use pharmaceuticals because they're very strong. They're very addictive and there's negative side effects when you try to stop taking them. So how can you, how are herbs different than pharmaceuticals in that regard? Are they addictive? Do they cause a dependency on the herbs or are they not similar in that regard? Um,
2: There are chemicals in nature that are Habituating or that are uh, as potent as drugs, and many drugs come from that. Um, but you have to remember that nature, you know, plants aren't producing things that are necessarily lethal. Um, and so most of our drugs come with the potential side effect of being lethal if you take an overdose of them. You know, the dosing and drugs are very, very specific. Um, you really have to stay within that dose range or you could become very ill or even die from these things. Um, and nature just doesn't make many chemicals like that. So when you look for things for sleep or stress or whatever that are as potent as drugs and try to find those things in nature, they're really hard to find. Um, you know, and, and generally the things that do come out of nature that are potent as drugs have things that are, they've been changed. Um, it's like in South America, people chew coca leaves all the time and have no long term negative effects from it. But you take those coca leaves and put them in a cocaine, in a, in a meth lab, and convert that phytochemical into cocaine, you got something different altogether. Same thing with poppy. You know, you can chew on poppy, you can eat poppy, it's not going to hurt you. But if you put it through a chemical process to get morphine, that's a whole different story. So you don't find these chemicals naturally. One of the biggest ones would be probably THC in marijuana. Um, It has a very specific effect in how it binds. But even THC, you really can't kill anybody with THC. Um, it does not cause respiratory depression or stop stop your heart like a synthetic narcotic will. Um, But most of the things that you find in nature aren't going to have those harmful effects and you're going to get the protective effects of the herb also. So you may not have the same potency, but you still, um, you, you, you you, you get an effect that does provide benefit without the negative effects, you know, that combination of ashwagandha and theanine and and these other herbs that I might recommend that I mentioned. um, All the people that I've had use it basically say, you know, I feel normal. I don't feel stressed like I was, but I don't really feel a drug like effect either. And that's a real advantage of most herbs, that you don't, you know, you get these protective effects and you get these balancing effects. Um, and it may not be as potent as a drug, but you're going to have a much nicer effect that you can take them long-term. They're not going to be as habi- be habituating. Um, so habituating chemicals, again, you know, there, there aren't that many. THC, you can find them in certain kinds of plants but most of your plants are going to be more protective and more normalizing, at least the plants that we've
1: defined as medicinal herbs. So Dr. Rose, another common thing we get from the chronic Lyme community is many people suffer with digestion issues and GI issues. So are there a combination of herbs that can help people with their GI related issues?
2: Oh, absolutely. And just back on the, you know, the anxiety thing uh, that 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 I mentioned, there are other herbs like passion flower, lemon balm, motherwort. There's so many others. They're pretty mild, but they can really help. And then CBD is really completely different than uh, THC in how it affects the endocannabinoid system. It doesn't bind the same way. So you it, you cannot get habituated to CBD oil. It has no addicting properties and it will not cause euphoria or any drug-like effects. And a lot of people find that that is beneficial for controlling these symptoms. And uh, it can give you a little boost in, in endorphins naturally um, so that it can be good for that too. As far as the GI tract, um, yeah, it does uh, seem that you do see a lot of gastrointestinal issues in people with chronic Lyme disease, but it seems more in people who have had antibiotics. Um, And I think the stress of the illness, stress itself can cause issues. So when we look at the intestinal tract, there are two, the the, the one big issue with intestinal dysfunction um, is immobility. Of, of lack of motility, things aren't moving through like it should. Um, so chronic stress causes things to slow down. And if you're slowing things down, you know, bacteria are, the difference in bacteria in our cells is our cells don't uh, typically divide Um, just to continue dividing, all right? So like our, you can only fit so many heart cells in a heart. So our cells have restricted growth. You know, we can only, um, when our cells become unrestricted, it's called cancer. So our cells are restricted in growth. They only divide to replace cells that are missing. Bacteria are obligated to continue growing as long as there is food. It's called unrestricted growth. So bacteria, as long as food present, is present, will continue growing and they must do that because bacteria is simple enough that the cells can't repair themselves. The only way that bacteria can survive is making new bacteria. So bacteria, new ba- bacteria divide anywhere from any 12 minute, uh, to 20 minutes to every 12 hours. Uh, so as long as food is present, they will keep growing. So bacteria in the gut keep growing continuously as long as food is present. So if you're not having a bowel movement every day, you've got bad bacterial buildup. And if the gut slows down, then things start backing up into the stomach and bacteria start continue growing in the small bowel. So when people get gas and bloating that we call SIBO, it's because Things aren't moving like it should. And the bacteria keep growing. The other aspect is disruption of the normal balance of bacteria in the gut. And this happens with antibiotics a lot. Um, The only thing that keeps pathogens in check in your gut or the primary thing is your normal flora, which they don't do it because they like us. They do it to suppress their competition. So, so our gut flora constantly producing substances that suppress potential pathogens. And it's just a relationship we've had. We also pump antibodies into the their, their gut contents that help suppress our, our uh, pathogens without killing our normal flora because they help suppress the pathogens. So when you take antibiotics or if you have a slow motility, pathogens build up. All right, so I talked about the fact that microbes are always trying to cross barriers because they want to get to our cells. All the pathogens in our gut want to get to our cells, too, and uh, I found a study in 2015 that showed in dysbiosis, when the normal flora gets suppressed, that pathogens erode into the gut lining and uh, cross over from the gut into the bloodstream, and they end up in your brain and in your heart and in your joints. So you, then you have that layered on top of everything else with Lyme microbes. And this is happening all the time. Uh, what, what I'm finding is we all have microbes that you know microbes from the skin and gut end up in our tissues, even our brain pretty readily. And that happens with everyone, which is part of that pot boiling over thing. If you let your cells get stressed and your immune system get overtaxed, all of these things start flourishing. But um, so gut illness, I'm seeing it as more and more this issue of a slow motility with overgrowth of pathogens and the pathogens eroding into the gut lining. And the early stages, you know, you do a colonoscopy or an endoscopy. It's not enough that they see physical damage. Um, But as it progresses, then you get more and more damage but it occurs on a microscopic level, even early on. And one way that I would explain, you know, everybody with irritable bowel syndrome has the alternating loose stools, followed by the constipation back and forth. Right? So here I am talking about slow motility and somebody's got loose stools and they're running to the bathroom. How does that, well, what happens is leaky gut is what happens. Um, When we talk about leaky gut, what that is, is slow motility and pathogens in the gut eroding into the gut lining, which damages, uh, which wipes away the protective mucus layer And uh, all cells are food for microbes So our intestinal cells are food for microbes, too. So you need a protective mucus layer to protect those cells. And when that breaks down and when pathogens and slow motility and eating bad carbohydrate food loading with lectins starts stripping away that protective mucus barrier, the pathogens start eroding their way into the, the protective gut lining and start crossing that barrier. Um, so you have microbes and foreign proteins from food crossing in that we call leaky gut. Well, you also have leakage the other way with water leaking in the lower small intestine into the intestinal tract that causes that flushing. So once you have the flushing, people have that for a while, but then it starts to heal because you flushed, you, you know, you started to clear some of those bacteria, starts to heal. They get constipation from the slow motility, and it starts all over again. So that's a big part of the whole thing. So restoring, you've got to restore normal intestinal function. Um, That means eating good food. That means protecting that mucus barrier, reestablishing the mucus barrier. So I use slippery elm for that. We want to suppress pathogens on uh, most of the things we use for lyme disease suppress pathogens in the gut which is really important but also berberine i found to be really good um, digestive bitters can help increase motility reducing stress helps increase motility you got to get things moving again you've got to get things flowing um you got to help digestion with digestive enzymes So all of those are part of a gut uh, uh, protocol to restore normal
1: gut function. So Dr. Rose, it really seems like herbs can be used to treat not only chronic Lyme disease, but many of the complications that result from Lyme disease as well. Oh yeah, that's the, yeah, herbs are just great. There's
2: (laughs) It was um, interestingly, um, you know, I'm sure you guys are aware and a lot of our audience are probably aware that there was a study from Johns Hopkins last year that verified the use of several of their herbs that we commonly use for Lyme disease and some that are in my protocols um, for killing Borrelia. And these were test tube studies because they wanted to isolate the possibility that the herbs could be affecting the immune system in some way. They wanted to know did they kill the bacteria directly? So uh, several of the top ones Clove and Artemisia were on the list. I don't typically use those as primary herbs because they have some toxicity, but other herbs that were, Japanese knotweed, cat's claw, Chinese skullcap, um, and there are a lot of things that I used that they didn't look at, like garlic and things, but those top three, those were really good. They showed that they killed Borrelia two weeks ago they did the same thing with Babesia and these were comparing to antibiotics and these and, and the herbs actually outdid the antibiotics in the Borrelia study they outdid doxycycline and azithromycin right so they did it with Babesia and uh, it was really nice that this that we were getting this kind of attention in a, in a major uh, university like this now so they 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 looked at different herbs and on the top list for Babesia was Japanese knotweed, and Chinese skullcat. There's some others too, like like, uh, cryptolepis that, that a lot of people hear me talk about. Andrographis and garlic were on that list and had good activity against Babesia. So, but Japanese knotweed, Chinese skullcat, both microbes. Well, I did research when I was researching long COVID about herbs that could affect COVID that had been looked at, and a lot of herbs had been looked at back in the other SARS epidemics. Japanese knotweed and Chinese skullcat were on the list. So you look at this broad range that just these two herbs have. It's pretty remarkable.
1: So talk to us more about, we often hear from people that are really, really sick with Lyme and they have neurological Lyme, that they need a treatment that can pass the blood-brain barrier to really effectively help them feel better. So are herbs powerful enough to be able to help people that are severely sick and have neurological Lyme disease?
2: Yeah, there is evidence that a lot of these phytochemicals do cross in the blood-brain barrier, and I think some of the antibiotics do also. But the issue is, I don't think any antibiotics, herbs, or anything else are really penetrating into the cells as much and, you know, you hear about biofilms is a way that the, of why chronic Lyme disease is persistent. You know, I, I think all these bacteria can be present in biofilms, but we don't have large quantities of biofilms in the body. One, it's, the, it's symptoms of, of, of Lyme disease are not caused by biofilms. You know, typically biofilms cause symptoms by damaging the surface. Um, And there's not really that much food in a biofilm, you know, these things want food and the food is in our cells. So all of these things, I think the persistence of them is the fact that they are harbored inside cells. Um, And, but so getting these things so when you have an opportunity to kill them, it's when they emerge from a cell. So early on, people have a lot of microbacterial activity of, of bacteria emerging from new cells. So we're killing that. And you know, that drives the Herzheimer reactions and that sort of thing. But with time, you do get rid of those bacteria, but you don't kill the bacteria inside the cells. That's why typically that 30 days of doxycycline isn't going to do it. That's why the Lyme doctors are using antibiotics for months or years on end. The problem is most of the time when the antibiotics are stopped, people go right back again. So you do have to keep the pressure on long-term. Antibiotics, you kill normal flora. Herbs, one of the really great things about herbs is they're selective. You know, we talk about all these pathogens they kill. They don't kill normal flora. The plants have to take care of their normal flora. And a phenomenon that I experienced was, you know, I took herbs for, I've been taking herbs for a dozen years now. And if anything, my gut just keeps getting better instead of worse. It's the best it's been in my life. Because the herbs are selective. They're suppressing these pathogens without disrupting our friendly flora which I think is just really, really important in this whole process. Um, so the herbs are more selective so that you can use them long-term just to wear these things down and allow the immune system to, use its, do, to do its job. So we're, we're helping cells to be less vulnerable by protecting our cells. And we're taking the load off the immune system by helping to suppress the microbes and decreasing cellular turnover. So there's not so much debris and junk from dead cells. So the herbs are doing so many things all at once to enhance our ability to overcome this this thing. But it's a long-term process. and, And I think what you're seeing in the neurological system is just the time it takes for healing um, and that's what people get frustrated with. It's not as much that the therapy isn't working as far as killing or suppressing the microbes, it's that it takes a long time to heal. So if you injure your skin, you start turning over skin cells immediately and you know a wound is on its way to be healing within days and you know, several months, it's, it's healed all the way. Um, if you bruise your muscles, It takes several months, takes a lot longer for muscle cells to turn over. You bruise your heart muscles or damage your heart muscles, it takes a year. Nerves, they're the slowest turnover of any cell in the body. So it takes a long time for the neurological system to recover from being damaged. So you do need that really nourishing environment of good food, low toxins, low stress, and the support that herbs give for a very long time for neurological symptoms to go away. And it's not because the microbes are driving it as much as because nerves are really, really slow to heal.
1: So another common thing we hear is insomnia related to chronic Lyme disease. And people try everything under the sun and they can't sleep, which makes them feel even more sick. And it just put them in the cycle of getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So are there herbs that can help people relax and get a good night's sleep so they can actually let their bodies heal? It's a tough one. It's, It's hard
2: to sleep when your brain's on fire. And, um, in my journey, uh, insomnia was a huge part of it. You know, I was practicing obstetrics and I was on call every second to third night, which means I was awake most of those nights. And You know, when I was in my 30s, I could do it. I didn't sleep when I wasn't on call. You know, that's when I could have my time away from family and everybody else. I mean, I'd stay up to one o'clock at night and then be ready to go at seven the next morning. And I crashed when I got into my mid 40s trying to do that. Um, And it was the big factor for me that precipitated my illness. I was still trying to work and in the process I was desperate and, you know, I mean, I had spent my entire career being so careful about any kind of habituating prescription that I ever wrote. I was so particular and here I found myself desperate. And after this odd two week stint where I was on call for every other night and didn't sleep when I wasn't on call, I went to see us. I went to a sleep clinic and said, check me in. I'm done. And they said, no, no, no just take this drug called trazodone, you'll be okay. And I did. And it started uh, a journey that was just crazy because the drug had a lot of toxic side effects. And they told me it wasn't habituating. It was. I very quickly became habituated to it. From trazodone, it was Ambien. And then finally had to stop obstetrics because when those drugs start working, there's nothing that can help you with sleep. Um, and it took me years of tapering off with, with Valium to get off the drugs. So I know about these drugs firsthand, very much. Um, and in some ways, it allowed me to cope in that when they were working, I could sleep, which way allowed me to continue functioning life. But it was a bare function. Um But the price to pay is that they are the most habituating substances on the face of the earth. And when they stop working, there is nothing that can help you sleep. Um, And I found that. So I'm always very cautious um, in the advice that I give people and the encouragement to say that, yeah, it's so tempting, Um, but be really, really careful about habituating drugs. Um, as I mentioned before, nature just doesn't make anything that potent. I mean, we were, you know, we've, we've been, um, my crew and I have been trying to design a sleep formula for about, uh, we worked on it for six months. And it's, and it's just this impossible task to uh, meet everybody's expectations of something that will put them to sleep, give them a nice eight hours of sleep, have no side effects, not be habituating and no hangover the next morning. And yes, I want it as a natural substance. And the thing is nature just doesn't make that um, because those things will kill people. They're in poisons. So there is nothing in the natural world that can affect it like a sleeping pill. Um, In other words, there's no, there's no hammer in nature. Um, so it does take a lot of little things. So I had to train myself to sleep again. And one of the big things that I found was you just can't sleep when your brain's on fire. So the thing that helped my sleep more than any other one thing with the herbs to take to suppress the microbes and suppress the inflammation. So as I was taking the herbs, as I was taking, you know, when I was in, in, in a good place, um, and taking turmeric and krill oil and all the herbs to suppress the microbes. And when my Lyme symptoms were gradually getting better, I mean, you can just feel it, you know, you can feel if your body's inflamed. And then the less inflamed my body was, the better I slept at night. Um, so it's actually those herbs that helped me more than anything else. Aside from that, some people find that um, some of the things you know, like passion flower and GABA and melatonin, they help a little bit. And you know, so so for nights that you you um, are having a rough time, I, I think it's it's uh, those things can be helpful. CBD can help normalize things and sometimes be helpful. Um, the herbs just to help reduce stress during the day are helpful. Um, but you know, I tell everybody with that issue that if we could pick you up and put you on an island in Greece, say, where you lived in kind of an open, clean air environment and you had a garden where your food came from and you worked in the garden and you basically just walked all day and worked in the garden and didn't have any other stress. And you just stayed active through the day and your social interactions with the people in town, they were good and you ate fresh whole foods and you took herbs every day Man, you'd be sleeping like a rock in two months. No problem. You'd be well. And and so, you know, it's creating that healing environment when your body starts to heal, when the microbe load starts to decrease, when the inflammation starts to decrease, all the functions come back. get better but in in that time it's really tough so I put a lot of weight in creating that healing environment um being active is important for sleep and you know it's 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 adrenaline adrenaline keeps you awake um you know when if your house is burning down at 3 a.m you want something that wakes you up and adrenaline specifically does that um So we have this substance called adenosine that builds up through the day. So it creates something called sleep pressure. So the more you're awake, the more adenosine you build up, and the more adenosine you build up, the sleepier you get. Caffeine blocks adenosine and adrenaline blocks adenosine. Uh, So drinking caffeine, even though you may need it to get you awake, you still got a quarter of that dose by the time you're going to sleep and that blocks adenosine, and that blocks sleep pressure. Being active during the day builds up adenosine. So if your day is sitting in front of a computer screen pumping out adrenaline, you're not building up good adenosine. If your day is uh, working around the house and working in the garden and going for walks, you're building up great adenosine. It's going to help you sleep. Um, so those little things do add up and what you do in the evening um, before you go to bed is important. So your daytime has a better uh, a, a propensity to affect your night's sleep than anything else. Um, so those kinds of things. And I just learned that, that you know, that you, you just, it's a dance and you have to do that dance. And the more people I can help do that dance, I think are, are useful. Now, that being said, there are certain situations where a benzodiazepine or a sleeping pill can be helpful, Um, you know, when during travel or people have periodic stressful events and things like that. Sometimes those things really can make life better. Um, There's a place for every drug, but um, it's you really have to be careful for how you use those things. So I definitely put out a word of caution just from my personal experience.
1: So Dr. Rose, on the daily activities that you mentioned and moving and getting exercise, there are some people who are chronically sick with Lyme disease that can't get out of bed, they're bed bound. And we've had this discussion with many past podcast guests, but we haven't gotten any specific detail that can help them move and help them get the exercise needed to start the process of healing. So what specific recommendations do you have for those people who are very sick are not able to really go out there and exercise, things they can do in their bed, in their couch, in their home to start getting their bodies moving again.
2: Right. Yeah. Um, I'm coming around to thinking that the most important thing that exercise does is move blood and move, you know, have our cells working. So if our cells are stagnant, um, then junk gets backed up around the cells. So what inflammation is, is just congestion around our cells. And our cells need good flow for to get those nutrients and oxygen and water and have any metabolic waste get away, they have to have flow. And if you are sedentary, then your cells aren't getting flushed. So, you know, you hear about people taking all these detox products and detox protocols what detoxification is, is flushing the con- the congestion from around your cells. So it starts at a cellular level. If you're just dumping a bunch of stuff in the GI tract, binding agents and chelating agents and all this kind of stuff, you're not getting to where the problem is. The problem is the cells. You have to move blood to flush the congestion from the cells so cells can breathe. So it is a deal because... If your body's really inflamed, you move, you create friction and that friction drives the problem harder. So you get, it's that catch 22, you get caught between a rock and a hard place. So moving some is important. And, you know, there, there are a lot of exercises you can do. Um, one thing that I promote a lot is something called Qigong, uh, Q-I-G-O-N-G. It's just simple back and forth movements. And we're finding these simple back and forth movements that we do with Qigong really have this extraordinary effect on the brain, but they also move energy and move blood. They get our cells working. And you can do Qigong exercises in bed. Um, So just slightly off topic, um, I, I was trying to learn how to meditate, which I've always found to be really hard but I got this device called a Muse, uh, M-U-S-E, and you put it on your head and it's, it's like a compact EEG machine that senses your brain waves. And when you're relaxed, you hear the sound of chirping birds. And when you're, when you're more agitated, when your brain is more agitated, you hear uh, thunder and rain and storm. And um, so I was using this thing and just fighting with it, you know, trying to get the birds, trying to get the birds, trying to get the birds. Oh, I got to get those birds. Um, and it was hard. And one day I put it on and started doing these back and forth movements with qigong immediately. All birds, nothing but birds. Just every time I did it, it just put me in that place immediately. And it just shows how powerful that is. Uh, These just simple back and forth movements that anybody can do, even somebody who is in bed, which is really cool, Um, but it's moving blood. Um, Is it moving enough blood? Not not as much as we would like. Um, And that's where I promote sauna. Um, I think sauna is really important because sauna moves blood without friction. That's really important. Moves blood without friction. When you heat your body up, and there are other things too, you know, there are heating pads and hot baths and Epsom salt baths, but I like sauna because people sweat. And it, and when so when you heat your body up, you increase your heart rate, you dilate blood vessels, so you get more flow, and that's more flow into your cells. So it's been documented that sauna is better for detoxification. Removing heavy metals, debris, junk, it's better than anything because it's flushing your cells. So I had a a sauna for about three or four years, and after I got back to a regular capacity of exercise, I mean, my minimum is walking three miles a day. Um, And when I got back to that, you know, it's just, honestly, it's not fun to sit in a box and sweat, Um, but, Uh, I I used it consistently, and I think it's really important for those who can't move to be able to get blood flow going in some capacity. That is an essential part of the healing process.
0: Dr. Rose, one of our recent podcast guests argued that um, anaerobic exercise will heal or increase your T cell production and heal your immune system. Um, what are your thoughts on um, anaerobic as opposed to aerobic exercise and the impact that it has on your immune healing?
2: Uh, You know, you can look at specific studies that go either way. And, you know, I, I like to, uh, I always look back at human evolution and where we've been to help make some of these decisions. The thing about scientific studies is when they are reductionist, you know, when you take, a specific parameters, you can set up a study to say pretty much whatever you want it to say. Um, And I think exercise in general is really good for us, but it's all about living within our genes. Um, You know, our cells are programmed, uh, have been programmed by several hundred thousand years of human evolution. And if you look at human evolution, humans were just basically foraging food a lot of the day, which required stooping over, bending, walking. Um, It wasn't high intensity running. I'm sure they did some running, um, but it was mainly walking, lifting small objects, uh, carrying things around, moving rocks, moving logs. Um, so we did a little bit of all of it. And I think the closer that we can come to that, the better off we are. So, you, you know, there, there is a use it or lose it phenomenon with muscles. If you're not doing some uh, strength training, which involves anaerobic exercise, I, I think you are missing out, but I would not say that aer- that anaerobic exercise is superior to aerobic exercise. I mean, that's just, that doesn't make any common sense. You know, it's not how humans are designed. Um, I think some of it is good, but do I think just going to the gym and weightlifting is good? No, I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't at all. Um, I, I, I think that it, it's, 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 it goes beyond just exercise itself, all right? And when I look at exercise, being physically active, it's about what you're doing to your brain as much as what you're doing to your muscles. And this is just looking at a general health point of view. When you are just going to the gym and doing the same thing, you're lifting weights, bumpa, 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 doing the same thing day after day. Your brain is learning nothing. You are generating zero new neurological pathways, zip. I try to go out and learn new things all the time. I mean, I got a one wheel um, for Christmas. That was my big Christmas deal, Um, which is, if you haven't seen them, it's a balance board with a wheel in the middle, and it requires balance and skill, and you have to learn how to do that thing. Um, you know, I'm constantly trying to learn new skills, because if you are being physically active, but you're learning new things, you're creating new neurological pathways. You know, I mean, I see a lot of people in their 60s who have lost their balance. You know, with time, you lose your cerebellum and your balance centers, and I see a lot of people that, that have a hard time balancing my balance is still good because I'm still moving those pathways. You know, I, I, I paddleboard surf, I kite surf, I do this 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 one wheel thing. You can't get any of that in a gym. Not to knock gyms, you know, I get, there, there's a place for them. And I think just strength training is important too. But if that's all you're doing, you're not working your brain. And working your brain is just really, really important.
0: Girls, I want to thank you for joining us and sharing, of course, all of the knowledge that you always do with, uh, with our community. And, and can you just share with us uh, one more time where folks can go to uh, take advantage of the um, unlocking line giveaway that Rawls MD is offering, where yeah. folks can go to learn more about um, Lyme disease and, uh, and herbal protocols that are offered by what I'm calling Rawls MD University and uh, where folks can go if they wanted to um, purchase any products from your um, supplement company.
2: Um, yeah, it's uh, rawlsmd.com is a really great, great resource. We've been building it out with articles for uh, about five years, I guess. And there's a lot of information on the website about uh, every topic you can imagine. Um, we do webinars once a month. Uh, we generally do a a uh, book giveaway, and um, I do consults uh, during the the, the day. Um, I I don't overload my schedule with them because they they take a, they're they're pretty intense when I do. So um, I don't do uh, but two or three of them a day. Um, but consorts are available, and then we generally give a consult away for, for people that come and join our webinar. Um, the book website is unlockinglime.com. Uh, my website is rawlsmd.com. So, for the month of May to celebrate Lyme disease awareness, we're giving the book away for just shipping and handling, which is about four bucks um so it's a great resource for a lot of people it's not just a cheap giveaway book it's a genuine book that has made a difference in a lot of people's lives and um so the the book giveaway can i'm sure be accessed in one of those places aside from that um the staff at vitalplan.com where we have supplements also yeah, uh, they they have information about it, and and certainly uh, information about supplements and programs and that sort of thing. So it's RawlsMD.com, UnlockingLyme.com, and VitalPlan.com.
0: Doctor Rawls, in closing, I do want to share with um, our listeners that I am one of your biggest customers. I've uh, purchased um, your book uh, and your audio book, as I shared in the beginning. I've actually um, uh, I have been a long time subscriber to your uh, your supplement program, and I recently had a consult with you, which was an unbelievably brilliant consult. It was <laughs> worth every penny. In fact, worth substantially more than every penny than uh, than uh, we we uh, paid for it. And uh, and I just want to encourage our community to take advantage of all the various services that you're uh, your company offers they are absolutely brilliant and i do want to share in the spirit of full disclosure we are not in any way shape or form that's think boot affiliated with Ro- dr Rawls or rolls md we are not paid in any way shape or form we are consistently recommending that people work with your company simply because we know you offer great products and great information and when we find something in our community that we believe helps people to uh, be liberated from the suffering caused by Lyme disease. We want to share that, and that's why we consistently share um, you and the wonderful information that you you share and the and the brilliant uh, company that you've created. So Dr. Rose, again, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, and thank you for doing all the work you do with Rawls MJ.
2: Well, Rich, thank you so much. I mean, it, you know, I, I wouldn't be in this place if fate just hadn't put me here. Uh, you know, it was because of my experience that I felt this need to give back to the community and I think a lot of people who have been through this struggle, uh, you guys included, um, see how important it is and, and so we give our time and our resources because it is important. It changes more than just chronic Lyme disease, it changes how we are living as a society and, and, that, and that matters and it matters a lot. So
0: thank you. Thank you for listening to the Tick Bootcamp interview with our guest, Dr. Bill Rawls. To our listeners, we have a call to action. First, if you'd like to learn more about Unlocking Lyme, the free book giveaway, or Dr. Bill Rawls and his tick disease journey, please visit his Instagram at RawlsMD or VitalPlan. Second, if you enjoyed this episode of the Tick Bootcamp podcast, please share it with your friends by using the social media buttons you see at the bottom of the post. Third, Tick Bootcamp has created a tick by blueprint that has been inspired by the information that has been provided to us by past podcast guests. We urge you to visit our website at www.tickbootcamp.com to view the blueprint. Please note we would appreciate any input or any improvements you would like to share with us. Fourth, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Spotify to get your automatic episode updates of our Tick Bootcamp podcast. And finally, we thank you, the members of our community, for the comments that you have made on our past podcast episodes. Please take a minute to leave us an honest review on iTunes or on our Instagram or our website. We make it a point to read every single one of the reviews we get. Thank you for listening.